everybody, Patrick McFarlane here, uh, back with another episode of Vital Descent. This one is episode 246. Show notes may be found at vitaldescent.com forward slash 246. And I'm really glad to be joined by Liam McCollum. Uh, Liam, this is your first time on the show. So if you want to introduce yourself to the audience, uh, that'd be great. Yeah, I'm, I'm Liam McCollum. I am a host of my own podcast, uh, creatively named The Liam McCollum Show. And um, currently, I'm I'm actually working part-time as a lobbyist with Americans for Prosperity. And I just want to say that I'm not speaking on behalf of them at all uh, during this podcast. Um, so yeah, I'm doing that. I just graduated from the University of Montana in May. Um, I study philosophy, journalism, and pre-law. Um, so law school has kind of been my my goal for a while, but I'm taking a year off, kind of trying to build a resume. Um, as for who I am and and how I am involved in the libertarian movement, um, I got interested in libertarianism probably my I, I think it was my my senior year is probably when I became a libertarian. I was taking a um, civics class with a, uh, Mr. Deming. Uh, he is currently representative Deming in in the Capitol. So I get to work with him um, quite a bit. And he introduced me to Ron Paul. Uh, I was a big Trump fan at the time and probably would have supported a lot of military adventures. Um, I actually remember supporting his uh, initially supporting the Moab strike. And um, after I researched it a little bit, uh, I kind of turned away and, and realized that uh, my conservative values or what I thought were conservative values of limited government, um, it, they weren't consistently applied to like the military and police. And, you know, I believed in the free market. Uh, but but for some reason, when I when I thought about like the military, I thought that we had to uh, go around the world with a big stick and um, the Trump presidency. And then that class uh, kind of um, woke me up, I guess. Yeah, I remember. I, I kind of had a similar path back, you know, when I was in high school and in undergrad as well. I was always a conservative, my parents, constitutional conservative, like founding fathers types. And it was always that, uh, you know, the cognitive dissonance between expressing a belief in small government. But then when I started learning about all the waste and corruption and, you know, everything, all the trappings that go with foreign adventurism, um, I really remember that phase shift in my mind. So I think a lot of people have that, that, uh, that experience, but the other cool thing about it is that you had a teacher that actually was able to influence you. And I think as activists at times, we feel like we're just shouting into the wind and it's hard when you have a podcast, uh, you know, you, you see the numbers, but they aren't always real because you're just in your basement talking into a camera mm -hmm. and, um, yeah. So how have you liked uh, doing a podcast and, you know, uh, actually being on the ground doing things in government and, and getting things done? Yeah, you know, I, I started my podcast out just as like a um, it was somewhat of a school project. I was like I said in, in the intro, I, I minored in journalism and I it was just an extension of one of my classes, a way that I th I think I could, um, you know, it, it was a way for me to learn outside of class because I was a uh, I was in a very liberal school and um, surrounded by progressives. And I kind of used that as an opportunity to learn from people I looked up to, like Scott Horton, who I've had on quite a bit. Um, 
and and then over time i just started to get more connections and then i found myself like going to uh the state libertarian party conventions i i went to reno and i got to meet a lot of the people that you know i've looked up to since my senior year in in high school and that's about like five years ago now so um it, it all happened pretty quickly. And I, um, I'm working with the Mises caucus as a volunteer in Montana. Um, so we're, we're kind of trying to grow the libertarian party and the movement in the state. Um, and then I, I just took this part-time position as a lobbyist this session, and it's provided me a lot of opportunities already, even though we're a few weeks in, um, just trying to understand like the uh, uh, different factions in the in the capital has been interesting like there's the the majority of Republicans are actually pretty libertarian um, or at least I feel like they can be guided uh, and then there's like the minority that are uh, they, they call them what do they call them the solutionary caucus and they're more willing to be like pragmatic and and work with Democrats and then uh, so that's been interesting because I, I've found a lot of allies within the majority of of the republicans in montana and um thanks to this position and thanks to uh um having that connection through representative deming uh it's it's been a lot easier for me to kind of get my um feet wet and and meet people yeah i think i think that's great and you you had mentioned um the libertarian leanings of of what it's montanans is that in wisconsin it's wisconsinite but yeah, it's, it's Montana. Okay. So, well, you mentioned that in, in a speech or at least comments that you gave to a legislative committee that I want to talk about later. And I don't want to bury the lead in the interview. We're going to be discussing some, this, uh, Chinese spy balloon situation. And, uh, you have a unique position because you actually live in Montana where this balloon has been spotted. Um, but you had mentioned, yeah, the libertarian leanings of, of Montanans, and I, I have some family in, in Great Falls, actually. And so I've I've been up doing like mule deer hunting, I think, in is it the Little Belt Mountains up there? Um, does I, that I think sound that's true? right. Yeah. Yeah. OK, good. It's been it's been a little bit. But um, so I, I have I, some fellow Mo Montanans in the comments, like judging me if I if I got that wrong. <laughs> if you got that wrong. Oh, well, I already put you on the spot. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I, I mean, I've been up there doing some hunting. I really like Montana. I think it's it's an awesome place, you know, especially if you want to do some outdoor stuff, but of course they have those missile silos there. And you were talking about uh, Montana being kind of a nuclear sponge in this terrible, like um, not a, not a, it's not, it's the opposite of mutually assured destruction. The, the idea we could get first strike or at least absorb nuclear strikes in a certain um, out of the way backwater, right? Like Montana or something. Um, I'm being sarcastic, but so I guess I don't know exactly where to go from that. Um, do you want to? Do you have anything to add there before we get into your comments? Yeah, I think it actually might be good to start with with my comments because it's actually impeccable timing. Like it's almost like uh, a blessing. Like um, I, I don't know how this happened, but on Monday, um, I found out that there was a resolution being introduced into a legislative committee in in Montana, which reaffirmed Montana's support for the war in Ukraine, as well as Article 5 of NATO. Um, and about an hour before this hearing, I decided that I was going to testify on it. And um, so this was on Monday that, that I testified. And then just yesterday, we, we found uh, or the news about the, um, the Chinese balloon dropped. And uh, 
it's very related because in in my testimony, um, I really focused on the fact that we are racing toward war with both Russia and China at the same time. And um, I was very nervous going into it because there were like 10 or uh, I think it was about 10 proponents in favor of this uh, resolution. Um, and we were very outnumbered. I was only one of two opponents to this resolution. And um, there were some representatives who had a military background who were saying that we needed to fully support Article 5 and be willing to go to war to defend all of all of Europe if necessary. And, you know, there were some emotional stories like there was a woman who who testified uh, who is from Ukraine and was telling stories of people she knew who who had died. Um, and so but once I heard that there were a few representatives who were saying that uh, we needed to back Ukraine militarily and and back all of Europe militarily, I kind of I mean, it made my blood boil. And quite frankly, even though I was nervous, I kind of had to like double down. And I, I, I was kind of motivated by that, because if if Montana was going to um, declare kind of like a statement of conscience on behalf of or the Montana legislature was going to declare this statement of conscience on behalf of all the Montanans, I wanted to uh, get an op opponent viewpoint in there first. And basically in in this in my testimony, what I what I pointed out is that I am a 22 year old um, from Montana and I this issue deeply terrifies me and something that should be considered by the legislators is the fact that we have these Minutemen 3 ICBMs in Great Falls. Um, and that was really the the focus of my testimony. And I, I pointed out that Avril Haines last summer uh, made she testified within the Armed Services Committee in the Senate that if if Putin feels as if his regime is about to be threatened or if he is about to lose the war, he may launch nukes. And I'm like, before you guys decide that you are going to reaffirm support for this war in Article 5 of NATO, realize that we are like the policy of the United States is to defeat Russia. And those those nukes are pointed here because of those Minutemen 3 ICBMs, which are a part of a nuclear sponge, which the strategic um, like intended purpose of this sponge is to divert missiles away from the coastal cities in DC so they have more time to prepare. Um, this is what they say in their in their papers, um, you know, strategizing for a nuclear attack. And so Montana is supposed to be the the first target, along with Wyoming and a lot of the other western states. So um, I, I pointed that out, and uh, it, it's like I said, it's impeccable timing because uh, yesterday uh, we we got this news about the the Chinese balloon. Um, spy balloon and and the State Department said that they were uh, spying on sensitive nuclear weapons. So there and there a lot of people are contesting this and saying, okay, well, it, it looks like it may have actually been a, a, a research balloon. Uh, there was actually a a general. Um, I'm trying to find the guy's name. I think I had an article. Yeah, uh, Colonel actually. Yeah, his name is Colonel. Ganyard, he said it's, it's possible the balloon was just a research balloon that drifted over from China af after multiple days and that uh, China would actually be like, um, this would be a very strong provocation that they would really gain no benefit from. Um, so there are contested reports that they weren't actually sur surveilling these nuclear weapons. But even under that interpretation, and even if that is true, it doesn't look good for the US because 
the reality is, is that it's seated in this context of uh, the United States racing to war with China, Russia, Iran, um, North Korea. So even though, like, like me personally, I do think maybe it would be justified for the United States taking this balloon down, you still have to, you know, uh, put an asterisk next to that and say, well, uh, we shouldn't carry water for the same neocons who want to go with go to war with Russia and China, because um, the reality is, is that both of them are world powers and we do not want to see what a a global war looks like. Um, you know, a lot of these these people repeat the cliche about uh, Einstein. He, he said, I, I don't know what uh, uh, World War Three will be fought with, but I know that World War Four will be fought with sticks and stones. A lot of people repeat that, but it's like these politicians, they, they think they're smarter than Einstein and that their their game theories about uh, mutual assured destruction will win out. And I, I, I just think that they're very arrogant. And um, yeah, I'm it's very convenient timing and I'm grateful for the, the reach that that video has got. Yeah. It's a very strange story, isn't it? It just seems like another chapter of this bizarro world that we're living in where, um, before we get into more stuff about the, the balloon, I wanted to, um, cite this article by Kyle Anzalone, my, my colleague at the libertarian Institute and, uh, antiwar.com. He, he was stating, so essentially there were high-level diplomatic meetings where Ant Antony Blinken was going over to China for a high-level diplomatic visit, which I think would have been good because I'm always a fan of diplomacy. Um, but now that it's canceled, it just seems like a convenient excuse to cancel these plans or at least postpone them. Um, so Kyle writes that there was a Department of Defense official that told the media that it has, quote, high confidence the unknown balloon is a Chinese-operated surveillance craft. Uh, they didn't release any details on how the Pentagon reached that conclusion or any evidence by saying that. And we actually have a statement from Beijing saying that the balloon is from China, but it's a civilian weather balloon for research purposes, as, as you had mentioned. Now, I know that some people, they, you know, they don't believe anything that China says. They don't believe anything that the United States says. We don't believe anything the government says, but I mean, there are things that are said that can be verified um, and at least taken into consideration when you're talking about this. Um, so American defense officials said to reporters that the Department of Defense was tracking a balloon for several days in American skies. Um, but the Pentagon also admitted that Beijing would gain very little from having a surveillance device like a weather like a balloon like a spy balloon they said first our best assessment at the moment is that whatever the surveillance payload is on this balloon it does not create significant value added over and above what the people's republic of china is likely able to collect through things like satellites in low earth orbit so it's like liam when you always look at these stories you know like the syrian gas attack story or um you know any any number of atrocity stories or anything like that you always have to stop and like think about what the motivations are of these other actors, these foreign actors. Like at the time with Bashar al-Assad, it was like, well, he just fought this war against Al-Qaeda. He knows the one thing that would get the United States or actually the Free Syrian Army and these, um, you know, these terrorist forces in Syria. But he knows the one thing that would get the United States involved would be chemical weapons because that's what was said by the United States. So it doesn't make sense for him to do this now. 
And you have Thomas Massey saying that on my favorite CNN clip of all time. Um, but anyway, sorry to go off on that, but I just wanted to get the details of this out um, to the audience because there were so many people on Twitter and on the internet just jumping to wild conclusions about this. Yeah, my my own representative, well, not my representative, uh, the representative for the western part of the state, Ryan Zinke, he, he tweeted out this morning, shoot it down. Um, and he was immediately like, and, and the thing is, is like, I, I do believe that maybe there is a purpose in retrieving it and seeing what they were spying on. But the, the, the problem is, is that people like Zinke and people like Jack Posobiec, he was saying that we needed to launch fighter jets and, and uh, launch them from Guam and send them to China today. And, and the thing is, is like, I, I can agree that maybe um, this is a violation of, you know, our airspace and that it should be taken down and that, you know, if, if a drone was outside my property, I'd, I'd want to shoot it down. But but the thing is, is that these people always are saying it within the context of trying to go to war. They've already calculated this into the equation. They want to go to war with China. That's where they're heading. They want to go to war with with Russia. So um, you you almost have to clarify and say, yeah, like like be more nuanced, say that, yes, this is a violation. Uh, maybe we should retrieve it. Maybe we should see what they were spying on, see if that poses any risk. Um, but but like Zinke wants to shoot it down. And then my my other representative, Rosendale, who has actually been really good, he, he voted against all uh, Ukraine spending. He also voted against McCarthy for um, his support of Ukraine. Rosendale came out and just said, you know, there, there has to be a safe way that we can retrieve this thing. Like he had a much more measured response. Right. Yeah. Uh, but then there's people like Jack Posobiec, who um, to, to take another example, like the, the Syrian gas attacks, uh, just a couple months ago, Jack Posobiec, he he um, it, it was during the event where uh, a Russian or a Ukrainian missile landed in Poland and right. killed like two people. Um, he immediately tweeted out that if we find out that this is a Russian missile, missile blood must be play, paid with blood and we should go to war and, and fight Russia. And funny enough, I, I responded to that and I, I quote tweeted it and I said, uh, this guy will, will say things like Ron Paul is right and then he'll tweet shit like this. Yeah. And that's what I said. And then he immediately responded and he said that my teeth were yellow. He went into my profile, looked at my profile photo, and and said my teeth were yellow. And and thankfully his audience saw that for what it was. It was an ad hominem attack, which is him admitting that he didn't have a counter to what I was saying. And um, I, I responded to the guy, and I'm like, why why are you glowing, Jack? Because I, I think that guy is definitely bought. Um, he, he seems like he's CIA, uh, and and anytime he gets any chance he gets, he advocates for war with Russia and China. Um, so yeah, I, I think that you're absolutely right. I, I think that, uh, we, we need to be reminded of, uh, that, that like, even if violations of our Liberty do happen by other countries, like even if they, we do find out that they were being aggressive and they were trying to provoke us, um, these, like the, the people who want war, that is their interest. And they will, they will try to manipulate an event like this to get us involved. Um, so we should resist that, I think. Yeah. And I think too, there's, there's several different levels of this, right? I mean, first to, you know, putting on, putting on my lawyer cap, trying to, you know, in, in criminal defense, there's always things like men's, and maybe you'll learn about this if you haven't already, but 
the elements of an offense, and then mens rea, which is the guilty mind, the intentionality. And and one of the things when you're thinking about this is, okay, there's several things we have to think about. One, is this device in our airway intentionally? Is it a spy device? Or is it, you know, what they're saying is, is a, a weather research balloon? You know, how did it get there? What is it? What is it doing there? Because, um, I mean, it, I guess it could be a surveillance device, but maybe it really is unintentionally there. And I don't think that we should necessarily discount China's reasoning in their public statements just because they're China. Now, you you evaluate it with a grain of salt, right? You don't just take it for granted, but it is there and it is evidence and it is a statement. And so maybe, I don't know, what what is our technological ability to get it there, to get up there and see what it is, or at least... Um, to examine it a little bit. And on the other hand, also to think about like, okay, well, what would China gain from intentionally sending a spy aircraft over the United States that would obviously be caught? Um, and what what would they be getting that they didn't already see through satellite imagery or other more clandestine means, you know? I, th- I think that's the the point right there is that they, they can actually pull more information from their satellites and, and they didn't need a balloon to do, to do that. Um, and it, it also, I, I was reading an article that says that it doesn't pose any military or physical threat at all because it's like above uh, air traffic or something like that. Um, I saw that too, so, yeah. Yeah, so I, I mean, I, I don't think it's a threat at all and I don't know why. I, I said something earlier this morning on, on Twitter that like we should always resist it when when people call for immediate military action without any opportunity for debate and they they seem to be responding from emotion. We we should be very yeah. calculated. That's why I think our our founders had had a lot of foresight to to say that if we do go to war, we we need to do it um, from the deliberative body that will sit down and actually debate and see whether it's necessary necessary. Because we have the Jack Posobiec types out there who say that we need to send fighter j- jets from Guam just because a balloon you know, entered our airspace. And, right. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, it's like, they, they probably already have a lot of our, the information about our Minuteman missiles, just like, I mean, the United States can see <laughs> anywhere on the, uh, earth at any time. And, um, I don't know that that's another thing that, that gets me is like, like I, I tweeted out a thread of, of the amount of times that just like recent times that, uh, the U S has, violated airspace of China or other countries. I all, all you have to do is type in like go to antiwar.com, look at the the search bar, type in US enters airspace. And then like it, it'll show the amount of times that uh US has accidentally they, they claim accidentally in, entered like Iranian airspace or something like that. And um I don't know. I, I don't think that that's worthy of of going to World War Three over. And that was another main reason why I, I wanted to ask you on too, because I was just I was impressed with your thread on Twitter that another person who you know who's um, you know not one of my direct colleagues at the institute or at antiwar.com, your first reaction was to look at the other side of the coin, right? What are we doing near and around China and in the Indo-Pacific, um, especially specifically as it it goes to the waterways over there, sailing warships through the uh, the Taiwan Strait on a near monthly basis, all these sorties and and activities that we have over there. Um, and I did see that thread and um, I, I thought it was great because here's, this is an article, let's see, 
that I wrote a couple of years ago now, um, talking about this this uh, great power competition, as it were. Um, and and one of the things that I cited was this article from the South China Morning Post talking about the United States um, using spy drones to uh, to spy on on the coast of China and and PLA um, basically bases along the coast. And here's here's a little um, a quotation from this article. Uh, these these UAVs carried out surveillance missions around China, including over the Taiwan Strait and on People's Liberation Army bases along the coast and near to Beijing's military facilities on artificial islands in the South China Sea, according to open source aviation monitoring data. Um, so this has been going on for a long time. This is a, a 16th of May, 2021. So almost two years ago, uh, this article coming out. And so that's one thing that we just, we don't see the other side of it. And you had mentioned kind of this, this Asia pivot and all the activities that we are taking to gear up to China, China being named the number one um, enemy, our pacing challenge for the 21st century. And all these uh, these new things about the United States opening four new military sites in the Philippines is is one here. Um, stronger partnerships with Japan being called for by uh, the NATO chief. I think it's Jens Stoltenberg. Yeah, Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg and the United States opening an embassy in the Solomon Islands explicitly to counter China. There's an Air Force general predicting the United States will be at war with China in 2025. Um, China holding live fire drills in the South China Sea after the United States warships enter the region. Uh, Marines opening a new base on Guam to prepare for war with China. Um, Kevin McCarthy planning another visit to Taiwan, which uh, Pelosi's visit is something I've covered extensively at the Libertarian Institute and really, after Pelosi visited, you see Chinese warplanes crossing the median line in the Taiwan Strait on an almost daily basis. Um, so there's there's so many of these. Um, there was one more, I thought. Anyways, but sorry, I've gone on a little bit there, Liam. But how did you discover this? I mean, all these things and think to tweet about it in response to this weather or this spy balloon. Well, I mean, I, I just kind of figured that like the United States as as the global power has definitely ha has more ability to surveil other countries. So I just had this instinct that um, and, and I was aware of the, the conflict in in this um, or at least the potential conflict in the South Asian Sea. And um, I've, I've been looking at uh, I, I mean, like to me, because I don't have like the knowledge that Scott Horton does where he can point to like article articles after articles and after articles. But what I am seeing is that there's like this unfortunate pattern. And, and I think that we are leading to a point where um, potential global conflict can can become a thing because uh, the, these wars are not in an isolated event. Um, they're, they're not just like isolated wars where, you know, the, the proponents of uh, Ukraine, for instance, they think they, they speak of it as if we can just topple Putin and that will be like the 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 end all of, of the war and, and then it will just end and nothing will happen. But I'm I'm looking like steps ahead and I, I just see that uh, the United States through its sanctions regime and through like um, all of its wars has kind of isolated, isolated itself from the global stage in a way where 
uh, we're, we're actually pushing like Russia, China, Iran, North Korea all together. And there's like this upcoming BRICS system that is, is serving as like a competitor to the United States and the SWIFT system and, and NATO. And I think I, I just have like this instinct to uh, look five or 10 steps ahead and, and see where we're, we're headed right now. Because like, for instance, Israel and Iran, they just held uh, the largest military joint military exercise. And then immediately after, um, Israel bombed Iran, uh, a factory within Iran. And um, right after that, Blinken came out and said that um, he will, uh, or they're not taking any any um, possibilities off the table from deterring Iran from obtaining a nuclear weapon. And then I see that, and then I acknowledge that, uh, I just look back to my knowledge of Iranian history, and I see that every single time there has been conflict in the world, it, it almost seems like large powers get involved in Iran and try to topple the government there and use it as a pawn. So my fear is that if, if Israel uh, and the United States continue to escalate with Iran, for instance, then uh, and the war in Ukraine then begins to bubble over, how then will Russia potentially try to use Iran as a buffer or um, something like that? Because in, in World War II, I know that it, Russia and the UK invaded Iran um, to, for resources and, and as a buffer. So I'm like, that, I'm just seeing that we're we're going to a point where where the Ukrainian war is not isolated. Um, they're also trying to escalate with China. Uh, our economic sanctions have created this this BRICS system, um, where you know, unfortunately, Putin has been able to kind of grandstand and and look as or, or kind of sit there from a place of authority and say, you know, the United States is a bully that has gone around bullying Libya. Syria, and he points to all of these examples, and he kind of is seen as like a potential solution to the United States going around and, and you know, waving a stick at them. And it's, it's, I don't know, I, the, I'm, I'm kind of blackpilled on, on all of it because I, I think that the United States just continues to isolate itself, and it's not, it's not learning from its past mistakes. Whereas, like China, um, is, is going to all of these African countries and they're, they're still kind of like offering them predatory loans and stuff like that, but they don't have any strings attached. They, they just say, Hey, let's be economic partners. You don't have to conform to our values. Um, whereas the United States tries to impose its values on other countries and, and, uh, uses bombs. So like in the long run, I'm just seeing that that is not a, a solution. And we're actually like isolating ourselves from, from the world and our, our politicians are putting us in a place where um, the dollar is going to die. Uh, it, it might be replaced by this alternative that, that BRICS will offer. And um, so anytime I see something like this, I just, I, I, I try to look for alternative explanations and maybe what the, um, the other side is saying. And, and that actually relates to another tweet that I sent out. I, I, if, if people haven't seen this, everyone should type in, in their browser, armed Chinese troops in Texas. This was a Ron Paul ad that he ran in, in 2012, where um, it, it's actually of his speech where he says, imagine that there were armed Chinese troops in Texas, uh, and, and essentially says, what would we do? And then uh, it becomes clear halfway through that he's talking about the United States and how the United States has gone around the world. It has over like what, over 400 bases around the world. And 
I don't know. I, I think that um, reality is hitting us. And uh, I, I hope that we can get the word out there so that, that our politicians stop and, and push for diplomacy. Welcome to the portion of the show where I tell you how you can help support this content. The best way to do that, guys, is to go to libertyweekly.club. Yes, I haven't changed the URL yet, but this is my membership website that also functions as a newsletter. So if you go to that website, libertyweekly.club, hit the subscribe button in the upper right-hand corner, and you can subscribe for the free newsletter, and I send out a lot of free content. However, there is a section in those free emails that is premium, and that premium section includes early access to my episodes, access to bonus episodes, and preprints of my articles before they're published at the Libertarian Institute or other outlets. So again, go to the website, hit subscribe in the top right hand corner and sign up for that email list. You go through the page here and you can see all the content that I've set out in the past. There's a whole bunch of it, guys, and you get access to those previous emails that have gone out as well another way to help support me is to go to liberty or excuse me vitaldescent.com forward slash stitch fix and sign up through my link there you'll get $25 off your first order and I will also get a $25 credit guys I use this to buy my wardrobe I'm a, I'm a father of two, I have my own business, I do this, and I don't have time to go shopping. Can't haul the wife and kids around to have a leisurely shop for myself to pick these clothes. So what Stitch Fix does is that they pick the clothes for you, they send them to you in fixes, and uh, it's really awesome stuff. These are all the pieces that I personally have bought myself. Uh, there's a lot of work stuff in there, but there's also casual stuff. I got an awesome, awesome uh, uh, plaid shirt that's in there a flannel really love that I got this really cool sweatshirt I got these awesome boots and a nice windbreaker really good stuff so go on over to vitaldescent.com forward slash stitch fix you can also get our vital descent really hard not to say liberty weekly vital descent merchandise with the cool awesome new logo from Mises pieces you can get all these kinds of things all this merch you got coffee cups pint glasses sweatshirts premium t-shirts premium sweatshirts Shirts, all that good stuff there at vitaldescent.com forward slash merch. Also, guys, I started a TikTok channel, and I think that'll be really cool trying to get more eyeballs on this content and more views. You can see it's um, already garnering a bunch of views where I do anti-war cartoon reviews and a lot of cool stuff there. So vitaldescent.com forward slash TikTok is where you can find me. My handle is at Pat McFarlane underscore the same as my Twitter handle. Okay, guys, that's about it. Check out those things. Please help support this content. Help me pay my producer and uh, make the show better for you guys. Thanks. Going back to one of the the initial things that you had said in regard to uh, Iran, I think it's funny because there's so many potential flashpoints. And of course, that's what you get with entangling alliances and all of these defense commitments that you just hand out like candy on Halloween. Um, I identify, you know, there there's so many of them. I identified one uh, in, in Kosovo um, and, you know, there, there's still an ongoing situation there that really hasn't been um hasn't been put to bed since the 90s since the nato intervention in kosovo and it just seems like that's a potential flashpoint and then you have one you identified with iran and then you have the north korea situation 
uh, coming to a head and being antagonistic. And then, of course, the great big ones with Taiwan and with Ukraine. And I'm sure there's more I'm not thinking of. I mean, there's there's always a situation in like in, in Syria with Turkey and, and their forces there and kind of this weird juxtaposition between Turkey being a NATO member, um, but then the United States also being involved in northern Syria there. Um, and it just seems like it's just escalation all around the table. Um, so it's insane. It's just insane. And it's and it's really unfortunate because our our American media, I don't know how they're able to get away with it, but like all of these algorithms, they're they're able to create a narrative in such a way that that people don't have like the the full context or they don't think about it because over the over the weekend, um, they or I think earlier in the week, they announced that the United States is uh, is having a military ex- exercise with Japan. And then a couple of days ago, uh, North Korea says that it will potentially use nuclear weapons in response uh, to more military exercises. And, and no one, everyone sees the North Korean threats as these isolated events where it's just like Kim Jong-un is insane and there's no reason behind it. And that just doesn't make sense to me. Like I want to, I want to find out what the, um, you know, motivating factors are is, is, and some people will say it's just because he wants to seem like a tough guy to to win over um, support from his people. But I mean, he is a dictator. I don't think he needs to really do that. Uh, but like, I, I don't know. I I think that it's like with this balloon story, for instance, here's another example of how how effective the propaganda is. It's like the necessary elephant in the room. The context that this event is is seated in is the fact that we are. Um, racing t- to war with with two nuclear powers. So it's like everyone's talking about how this spy balloon is looking at sensitive nuclear um, materials uh, according to the the government um, narrative here. And it's like, well, why would they be doing that? Why would they be doing that? It's because this is a nuclear sponge that poses a threat to them, and it's also the fo- the first target. and And there are also refineries around here. Um, so it's like even according to their narrative, if it isn't a weather surveillance balloon, like like it doesn't look good for them because uh, it, it's posing all of Montana, all of my family. Um, it's it's putting them in the crosshairs of this conflict that that these elites got us involved in, and that's that's kind of what I was trying to say in in the committee hearing. So <laughs> the timing was was very uh, very good. Now I wanted to also kind of ask you because there have been kind of like America first or populist who, who have been very good on Ukraine. Um, not perfect on Ukraine, but very good. I'm, I'm thinking your, your Matt Gates or your Marjorie Taylor greens. Um, but at the same time, you have them being very bad on China. Um, at least in my opinion, do you, do you, in some way, do you ever kind of sympathize with their view about China, viewing China as being a threat to us, if not militarily, at least economically or culturally? No, I, I think that these people are, they're not seeing like, it's almost like a law of nature, right? That, that they're able, they're able to see this law of nature playing out within Ukraine that because the United States is stepping on the, um, the scale in in putting its support behind Ukraine, that of course Russia will will respond and want to retaliate because the United States, um, I mean Ukraine doesn't po- pose a threat to 
Russia without the United States backing it. So the incentive there is for Russia to escalate. Um, but for some reason with Taiwan, they're unable to see this. Uh, so there's this cognitive dissonance there. And I think really the, the threat here, every time people talk about um, the threat of China, it always seems to me at least to be, they're, they're talking about it from an economic perspective. They're saying that we're an economic, th they're an economic threat to the United States. And I think that this is um, twofold. I think that the reasons are twofold. The, the first is that, you know, Taiwan is producing things like microchips. That's one of the first reasons you ever hear. Um, but the reason that we're so dependent on Taiwan for our microchips is because the United States government is so uh, restrictive when it comes to regulations and, and taxes that all of our production in the United States has has left the United the U.S. and we we depend on other countries. We don't make anything here anymore. Um, so that's that's one of the reasons why we are so dependent on Taiwan that we have to step on the scales and and threaten China. Um, so I think that the the response is that we should we should scale that back. We should be we should be more welcoming to production in the United States, and and in that way we don't have to. Um, escalate with China. And then the second reason I think that uh, they pose an economic threat to the United States is that, um, like, like I said earlier, when the, when the U.S. is dealing with other countries, when they're, when they're trying to give them economic aid or uh, when, when they're about to go in and regime change a country, it's always because of some strings attached, right? Like it, it wants to impose its values on um, this country and it wants a neoliberal uh, kind of friendly government that, that shares our values, or at least that's superficially what they say. Whereas China just wants to have these economic interests with the country, regardless of what their their values are. We're, we're seeing this in Africa, I think, quite a bit. Um, so they'll they'll approach these govern these governments, and I, I'm not saying that this is what they should do because it is predatory. They always give them loans. And I mean, they, they do effectively become vassal states as a result. But um, the, the, the main distinction is that China isn't going around trying to enforce its values on them. And the United States and, and our, our leaders have really put us in a terrible position where, where we are seen as a bully. And, and I think that we're actually shooting ourselves in the, in the foot because um, China has recognized this and they're taking an economic advantage as a result where what we really should have been doing this whole time is we should have been the shining city on a hill that that is allies with all nations, regardless of of, you know, who runs the country. And we just we just continue free trade. We let goods cross the borders and so on um, and, and also prioritize diplomacy. But instead, we we go around with a big stick and we try to topple governments and as a result, these governments are turning to Putin and uh, Xi. I think one of the interesting things specifically about China's, um, I don't know, they call it China's colonization of Africa or other third world countries, um, is this weird juxtaposition between the establishment hating China, hating and fearing China and spreading this hate and fear of China. But at the same time, they're kind of like, well, wouldn't it be nice if we could do things like they do them? Uh, have you heard this ever or or like specifically it came up with COVID? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that <laughs> it's just 
I think the reality is hitting the the government, and and they are st- like behind the scenes, they are probably recognizing what's happening. That the the dollar, I mean, just the fact that Saudi Arabia is now opening up um, economic relations with Russia and and allowing um, oil to be priced with the ruble, I think that this is a sign to these people that that um, the economic hegemony of the United States is is collapsing. Um, I think Israel. I, I don't know the specifics here, but there were I saw a headline the other day where Israel also um, is now trading with Russia in in a way like subverting U.S. sanctions. So um, I mean, I think that yeah, I, I think that people are starting to recognize that. And um, unfortunately, I don't think I think the U.S. is going down a path where it's going to have to inflate the currency and the dollar will die, and it's just going to end up harming us. Um, more if if we don't get involved in nuclear war first. <laughs> there was one thing that um I don't know if you're familiar with with James Corbett at all, but one point like he really likes to to drive home is that some some people in the independent media put Putin and Xi and the multipolar world order on a pedestal as being like, oh well, this is what's going to come in and defeat the evil West and all of the globalist planning, you know, with the like the WEF and all that kind of stuff. And Putin and Xi are going to ride in on this white horse and they're going to usher in this alternative system that's going to be, you know, pro-nationalist and and promote individualism, maybe or something like that. Um, but it, it really is like, no, it's going to be meet the old boss or meet the new boss, same as the old kind of a situation. And and maybe this transition period is, is what is supposed to bring that about, you know? Um, anything I, I think to, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think that's right. I, I mean, as someone who was very interested in Austrian economics, like I, I don't believe fiat currency, um, works in the long run. I think that it necessarily must fail. I think that government and socialism necessarily must fail. And, and therefore, uh, Putin and Xi will, I mean, they'll, they'll just be like the old, uh, they'll be like the, the U S empire before them. Um, and eventually they will have to fail too. But in, in the short term, the United States will, will feel the punishment because of, of their, uh, going around the world and, and bullying other countries and their use of fiat currency. Um, I mean, it's, it's monetary warfare, it's uh, real warfare. And I, I don't think that that works in the long term and and it's create created a lot of enemies. And one thing I specifically wanted to mention with this like idea of oh we hate and fear China but wouldn't it be nice if we could be like them was this head scratcher that I got I I wrote this article telling Tim Pool everything that I want him to know about the coming war with China uh because he is a big China hawk and he said kind of great thing better things recently about being against escalation in Ukraine that I commend him for. But I came across this article in Foreign Policy, which is like the voice of of the establishment when it comes to foreign policy. And for some reason, foreign policy is saying about these predatory loans in Africa that Beijing actually is not being predatory in Africa. And given the establishment's hatred for China, I was just so confused by this. And maybe I should send you this article because um, it, it, it's just so because I, I just wanted to get to the bottom of exactly what's going on. Mm-hmm. Why would 
foreign policy say that China, oh, actually, they're not being predatory. Maybe they're trying to get at the kind of the Trump faction who's, you know, goes along and says things like that. And so I just I haven't been able to circle that square in my head exactly. Yeah. What's the case that they make? I mean, why why are they saying that it's not predatory? Um, Let's see. I'd have to. I'd have to dig more into it because I just I quoted a little bit. They say this whole narrative misunderstands China and ignores the interests and agency of recipient countries. So I think what they really here, I'll I'll put it back on screen here. The Sri Lankan cases is kind of the banner case study um, in this foreign policy report in foreign policy journal or magazine, I think it is, said, um, this is their conclusion. They say this chapter is disproven the debt trap diplomacy claim surrounding uh, the Habanota, Habantota port. China did not propose the port. The project was overwhelmingly driven by Sri Lankan actors for their own domestic purposes, with some input from a Chinese SOE acting for commercial reasons. Sri Lanka's debt trap was thus primarily created as a result of domestic policy decisions and was facilitated by Western lending and monetary policy and not by the policies of the Chinese government. China's aid to Sri Lanka involved facilitating investment, not a debt for asset swap. The story of uh, Ham Bentota port is in reality a narrative of political and economic incompetence facilitated by lax governance and inadequate risk management on both sides. So I don't know. I just... I thought it was interesting and like finance is not my background really at all, but there, there is, because I've gotten this before from people when I say that the United States should urge for Ukraine to, you know, come to the negotiating table and they, they'll say, well, what you're doing is really imperialistic in a weird swap because you're denying Ukrainians their own agency. And maybe, uh, you know, if we if we view the 2014 coup as a coup that was primarily facilitated by the United States, we're really just ignoring the agency of these third world countries and being an imperialist in a different kind of way. Um, so it just seemed to me that that was kind of the crux of the foreign policy argument about these, you know, predatory lending practices in China. Hmm. Yeah, that just, is fascinating. And I think, so weird. I mean, another, another element there, um, just really quick, is like, I think that something that isn't noted often is is the fact that the United States does step on the scales and might actually be the reason for conflict in the first place. Like when they give uh, war guarantees to a country, the incentive for the the country that eventually invades is like, well, if because Ukraine has the U.S. behind it, we need to stop them now. And and uh, it is funny because um, I think Peter Van Buren made this argument that you know a lot of neocons like to talk about um, um, deterrence and and the effectiveness of deterrence, but uh, we're not the only ones that can use deterrence. And and Putin, I mean, he he used deterrence here, and it's kind of worked so far. Unfortunately, I think our our leaders are insane enough to ignore it, though, and and potentially have this conflict boil over. And and further, the the giving these war guarantees emboldens the protected country to be more belligerent too. Yes, and I'm glad you made that point because it, it really is important, uh, you know, to realize that you know, as Austrian econ- economists, incentives matter. Um, so. The, the other thing I, I just wanted to mention briefly before I, I let you go was this idea that 
uh, Colonel Douglas McGregor, I think, said in a recent interview with uh, Judge Napolitano on uh, his Finding Freedom show that what we could be seeing is the end of NATO. And what I envision possibly happening and maybe the best situation to come of this is escalation to the point where a bluff is called and a bluff is turned down. So maybe we have an Article 5 event and most of the NATO countries actually decide not to respond because they know what, what the consequence might be. Yeah, I, I actually think that that's, that's very likely. Um, but uh, hopefully a nuke isn't launched before that happens. I just, I, this, isn't, this is an anecdote, but I have a friend from uh, Slovakia. He was an exchange student during high school. And I reached out to him the other day because uh, I hadn't talked to him in a while and I wanted his perspective because back in high school, we were aligned. Um, he, he was a Trump supporter when I was. So I just asked him what his viewpoint on the war was, and he ended up saying that he's become more libertarian. <laughs> and then he said that uh, the the Slovakian government actually collapsed because it was supportive of the war in Ukraine. And um, most of the people don't support it there, and they actually want the United States to stop feeling this war and, and um, NATO to stop feeling this war. Uh, so that is just one person, but I, I did find it interesting. Um, because it was just random that I decided to reach out to him. And, and he, he is also opposed to this war. So I wouldn't be surprised if there are a few European countries that, that are like, no, and they, they might even end up leaving NATO, hopefully. Yeah, I mean, it seems like there might be some fractures in NATO. Um, I don't know, you know, with these leopard tanks and the Germans' reaction, but it seems like France has been one of the countries that hasn't been quite on board with everything. Um, so hopefully... You know, it's like people like you and me, we've we've probably grown up and been led to believe that France is just this pitiful country because we had to come rescue them and stuff like that. But <laughs> wouldn't it be ironic if they ended up, I don't know, in a way saving this situation? Yeah, that'd be awesome. Because well, of their cowardice. I, I, <laughs> Sorry. And, and also yeah. another element is that like governments in, in Europe can cult, fall pretty quickly because the parliament system. So um, if, if it gets to a point where Europe is you know, freezing as a result of U.S. sanctions and, and Western sanctions, uh, we might see these governments topple. And, and the worst case scenario is they become uh, very right wing and, and nationalist. But um, you're always worried about that reaction. But best case scenario is they just resist this war and, and uh, we get people uh, a mass exodus from NATO. Yeah. And we haven't even we haven't even started to discuss. I mean, the the blowback that we're going to see. I mean, hopefully this situation is is de-escalated and people can start to recover. But what is going to be the blowback from all these weapons floating around and all these extremist groups being empowered in Ukraine? Um, I mean, there is truth to the Ukrainian Nazi, uh, like the allegations. I mean, it's not to say that the entire you know armed forces of Ukraine are Nazi, but there are elements that are very powerful over there. And what's going to happen? Is it is it true that uh, Al Nusra is in Ukraine? I, I saw a report the other day that it's it's possible they're operating there too and getting these really? weapons. Yeah, I, I mean, I've I've heard rumors, but I don't know enough about it to really comment. Um, so, but the fact that it's a possibility is <laughs> enough. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me with because you had there. There's a whole chapter of the Kosovo situation that also involves Al-Qaeda and extremist elements there. And that was a NATO operation too. 
Um, and so I, I touched on that a little bit in my last interview, but I just don't know enough, you know, to really say anything definitively, but it wouldn't surprise mm -hmm. me. Yeah. So, well, Liam, I, I really enjoyed this interview, man. And I'm glad that you could come on, especially on short notice. Is there anywhere that you want to send uh, my audience or people listening to this? Yeah, just check out my Twitter. I know you you tagged it below. It's M Liam McCollum. Uh, definitely check out that video. It's it's pinned to my account. Um, the testimony I gave to this committee hearing because I definitely emphasized a lot uh, at the end. I actually said that instead of passing this resolution, they should demand that um, Lloyd Austin, uh, Blinken, and President Biden sit with their counterparts and and uh, push for diplomacy instead. Um, and then. I would recommend you guys check out my uh, my podcast, The Liam McCollum Show. I haven't done anything in over a month, but I'm hoping to start it here again soon. I'm also the host of uh, the Libertarian Party Mises Caucus's Ask an Austrian podcast, and, and we're kind of revamping it, and we're going to change the design here soon. So go to their YouTube channel and, and check out um, that series there. And if you have any questions about Ask uh, Austrian economics or libertarian theory, um, go to askanaustrian.com, uh, submit them there and we'll have your, an your questions answered live. Cool. Yeah, that's about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, keep up the good work, man. And if you, if you ever do decide to go to law school, I mean, when I was talking about it, all the lawyers I knew told me, well, they said, why? And then they tried to <laughs> convince me not to, but I'm not going to try to convince you not to, but I could, you know, I'd be glad to, if you want to discuss it or anything like that. Yeah, I'd love to. That'd be awesome. Or if you need recommendations, because everyone, you know, for, for the bar and things like that. So anyways, uh, always glad to talk about that. And hopefully we can do another interview soon sometime. That'd be great. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you. And uh, thanks everybody for, for uh, listening. We'll catch you next time.